Hold on to your butt. <laughs> you were saying? Welcome to episode 93 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Tonight, I am joined by the guy that is going to have to throw all of his baseball support towards that, towards that team that I cheer for in Cleveland, Darren Weeks. Well, that you know it's deep, digging deep right there when you're getting in the good old Cleveland Guardians talk, Mary. Which they is will very forever good, so. be the Indians. Oh, by the way, I'm Mary. For Congratulations to your Cleveland Guardians slash Indians for winning the division. Yep. Wow, who the heck would have thought? You swore My they won the World Boston Series, Red the Sox. amount that they were cheering. If the Red Sox were playing golf, they would have finished first because they had the lowest <laughs> score by far. So <laughs> they are, we're, on, we're on to that. So what's going on with you? It's been a couple weeks since we recorded. We have ourselves anyway. It's been a little while. Yeah, yeah. Last week we recorded with um, Dane and Brett from the National Civil War Museum in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So they were awesome to join us for that. It's a really great episode. Um, it's not on YouTube, unfortunately. We were having some video issues, so we couldn't put it on there. But yeah, definitely check it out. On um, We obviously have the sound of it on our usual podcast download places i can't think or talk tonight for some reason um grad school is like rocking my brain big time but anyway here we are recording it's great to be back how are you doing i'm doing fantastic i'm doing fantastic so i'm gonna ask you okay what are you drinking tonight as we warm this up this one up (laughs) okay i am drinking um forever new england game day ipa by cisco brewers out of nantucket so obviously it's got the new england patriots on the beer can there it's pretty good actually and i am drinking it out of i can say my now my the north civil war champions mug and how about you what wow. are you drinking tonight well thanks for asking me i really appreciate it i'm drinking well good old-fashioned yingling because that's what i had left in the fridge and i'm drinking it out of my antietam mug here because this is sort of this episode sort of dovetails a little bit into antietam we're not going to talk about antietam really no. directly but it sort of leads to it you so do have a nice a hat, though, before we get into well, it. Thank you. you. I very appreciate nice it. Hat. It's, it's the, the, our new company hats. Very, yeah. very cool. Thanks for noticing. I appreciate it. Let me ask you a question, Mary. And Have you ever lost something really important to you? Maybe something that maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe like a cell phone at a bar or something I like that. I knew you were going to bring that up. Yes. That, that, that maybe something you really wanted to hold on to, but you, but then it just couldn't find it. Have you that ever happened to you? Yes, it has. And it, oh, hap- it actually okay, well, happened in Fredericksburg. Happened twice in Gettysburg, as I remember. No, but listen, you, you, oh, but that's right, in Gettysburg too. I forgot about that. One battlefield at a time. So you'll be happy, you know, that losing important things has happened uh, as long as there've been things to lose for the most part. Today we are going to talk about Robert E. Lee's Special Orders One Ninety One, or as they are commonly known as Lost Order One Ninety One. The Lost Order, um, it may be one of the most discussed and maybe I don't want to say overblown. But certainly most dissected things, maybe in the entire Civil War, yeah. when you really think about it. And it's still very debated. And the thing that we want to do with this episode, it's one we've wanted to do for a while, it's something that interested, interests us a lot, is, you know, this is a thing that there is still a lot of debate over. There's also a lot of misconceptions, um, especially around the timeline, which I know you're going to go into detail about that um but too just the way it's been written about in the historical record you know in a few secondary sources i think has you know it's portrayed a certain way and you know the one thing it's like we're not being pro mcclellan with this it's sad we have to preface it like that but we're not being pro mcclellan we're just trying to tell the story and i don't think lincoln's going to come into it very much at all because this isn't really a lincoln mcclellan thing this is like a mcclellan and army of potomac and General Lee thing, right? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, some historians make it out to be a really big deal, such as Stephen Sears, for example. Mm-hmm. He says, and I quote, in the annals of military intelligence, there is nothing quite like it. He goes, to, he goes on to compare it to the uh, the importance of the code breakers in World War II. Um, some historians really, you know, use that the finding of this order really to attack McClellan, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. who, you know, who, who sat on this discovered treasure for over 12 hours before doing anything about it. And as you read the sources and you read some of the, the primary stuff, you realize that it's a very confusing thing, as you can imagine. Yeah. Needless to say, Lost Order 191, if anything, is really a treasure trove of misconceptions. And it's really definitely something that you really want to take a deep dive into to see how important the discovery of this Lost Order really, really was, right? Yeah. So I, I hate to do this. I hate to do this. But we have to turn back time again and go back in the Wayback Machine turn for you. back time. Ugh, the beginning of Lee's 1862 Maryland campaign yep. to get a full picture of this, right? Now, you probably don't remember we did the episode of this because this is back during your dark black hair days. So you probably forgot about this okay. one, okay? But but we, we have to talk about it. The summer of 1862, there was that real sea change mm-hmm. for the strategies of really both armies. You know, up to that point, the Confederacy was playing that really tight role of defense while the Union was, was on offense, right? George McClellan's Peninsula Campaign in Virginia, it's aimed to seize uh, Richmond. Uh, that was underway. And the Rebs' primary goal was defending the capital from Mack's army, who felt that, that sacking Richmond could bring the end of the war, mm-hmm. right? That's what was going on. So the change occurred at the Battle of Seven Pines, or the Battle of Eight Pines, we like to call, yeah. we like to call it, right? When Rebel Commander Joseph E. Johnson was injured, opening the door for Rebel um, President Jefferson Davis to appoint Robert E. Lee to command the army. This is after that fantastic one-day reign of Gustavus Smith, by the way. No one ever yeah. talks about it. Keep that in mind, right? Now, Lee, of course, everybody knows Robert E. Lee. He's the hero of the Mexican War. Uh, he's a commandant at West Point. Was really up to that point, was really just a military advisor to Robert E. Lee. He yeah. helped um, straighten out maybe the coastal defenses of, of Virginia. He helped the defenses of Richmond. But he really was just an advisor at that point, despite his background. Now, on July 1st, 1862, Lee is going to take command and it will change the army strategy almost immediately. Yeah. So instead of that playing defense that they were so used to doing, Lee decides the best defense is really a good offense, mm-hmm. right? So what will result will be that seven days battles aimed protecting Richmond. But instead of defending Richmond, he's defending it by driving McClellan away from Richmond with that series of offensive attacks, yeah. okay? Despite some early problems, specifically when Stonewall Jackson goes AWOL at the beginning and disappears for a while, yeah. Lee was able to get Mac to evacuate his supply place, uh, place at a place called White House Landing and retreat back to a place called Harrison's Landing. So this is really the end of the Peninsula Campaign. It drives his supply bases gone. He's driving them back. McClellan, he's going to call this retreat merely a change of base which is a military equivalent of coming home drunk and telling your girlfriend you have a change of sobriety. That's kind of how <laughs> it was, right? Fun fact, by the way, if this Harris's landing is where Daniel Butterfield wrote taps, yep. by the way. Interesting. So, so there you go. Cool. Many race bugle calls. So for Lee taking McClellan off that dance floor, opened the door to focus on another Union Army also in Virginia. This is John Pope's Army of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I know we're getting to we're going to be talking about Lost Order One Ninety One, but it's important to know that this that these Lost Orders were not uncommon. Okay, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, Lost Order One Ninety One 
was the fifth lost order that happened in the summer of 1862 alone. They kept, these things kept disappearing. Well, while Lee was hunting down John Pope's army, like we just said, Jeb Stewart's cavalry was sitting in a place called Verdeersville, Virginia. This is on August 18, 1862. Yeah. Jeb is sitting around by an unguarded ford, and he's um, he's waiting for Fitz Lee to get there. He hears some horses in the distance. Oh, this is him. Turns out it's the first Michigan cavalry. Oops. So uh, Stewart's going to jump on his horse. He's going to haul ass to the woods to escape. But when he does, he leaves two important things behind. First, his plume hat. He yeah. loses his hat. Yeah. Okay. Isn't this Second, how Buford gets his plume hat? He steals it from him? To, like, well, I'm not, I'm not steal sure it, that but that's he finds he, it. Yeah, yeah, so the other thing he finds, he finds Lee's orders um, that really discuss the plan they were going to use to attack Pope. Like I said, they were going to go and attack Virginia. Yeah. So these orders get turned into Pope, and when he learns about them, he's going to take off across the Rappahannock before the attack could happen. Okay, so it's, this is another big battle. Yeah. A week later, Catlett Station, okay, Jeb Stewart's going to get his, um, he's going to return the favor a little bit. He's going to raid Pope's headquarters this time. He's going to find a bunch of dispatches left behind, including troop numbers, reinforcements, uh, all kinds of stuff. This intel was key and helped setting up the Battle of Second Manassas a week later. Mm-hmm. My point here is these lost orders that you hear about are not that uncommon. No, and no, couriers were com- yeah they were commonly were commonly caught all the time, and both sides gathered information on them about that were used in these battles. But some yeah. though, they make this lost order one ninety one this once in a lifetime thing. Oh my god! And the reality is, it's not that it's not really true. We're going to talk about how the impact it did have because it does have an impact yep. specifically on Lee. But any, but for the most part, it's it wasn't something that just never happened. It, no, it happened actually and it's, quite a bit. It is made out to be that way. Like if you read Sears, and I mean Sears is amazing. I mean Landscape Turned Red is a, is a great, an amazing book about Antietam. He's got a book about Gettysburg. But if you're to read him, it seems like, oh my God, this is like the first and only time this has ever happened. And like you said, that's not the case. And you know, like my question is, why don't we? about these other lost orders because that's really it's really intriguing because if it makes you wonder how many of these lost orders are connected to certain battles happening and why we just don't talk about them more but you have to remember too like it's the 1860s they're not texting each other like we do today these are like couriers that are taking them places right and in some in some cases they're being delivered by spies too right and spies get caught this one was a big deal because the players involved uh, the rumors that came out afterwards, the media making a big deal about it. Yeah, and just but, the you know, the whole the whole thing with like, oh, I didn't lose them, you know, as we'll get to it. Spoiler alert: D. H. Hill being like, I didn't lose it, you know. No, no, but but just to get to the timeline, just so we can get there. So after the second Manassas, you know, that hammer versus nail Confederate mm-hmm. victory that we talked about um, on our second episode, Mary. That's yes. how long ago we talked about second Manassas, like right? Over two years ago. Pope's going to fall back into the defenses of Washington after getting his butt handed to him yeah. by Lee and Jackson and Longstreet too. But back at the White House now, Lincoln and that administration, they're at this crossroads now trying to figure out what the heck's going on with the war in the East right now. Mm-hmm. McClellan failed to seize Richmond. The arrogant John Pope, who's used to seeing the backs of the enemies mm-hmm. running, got his ass kicked at, at, um, at the old battlefield at Bull Run. Yeah. So on September 3rd, 1862, Lee's realizing that the, the army's in, in kind of a disarray. He's gonna he's gonna write a letter to his boss, Jefferson Davis, and in it, 
he's going to explain that he wants to take the war into the north, into Maryland and Pennsylvania. Now, why does Lee want to go into Pennsylvania or Maryland, right? Yeah. Obvious reasons. Yeah. He thinks he can help flip the neutral state to the Confederacy. He says, we go in there, they're a border state. Maybe we can get them to, to flip. The supplies is always a thing. The war had been in Virginia for a little while now. He wanted yeah. to get out of there and help feed his army. Well, yeah, because the third the... thing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Also, the third thing was the politics. I mean, the mm-hmm. midterms were coming up here, and there were people in the North who were, who were already tired of the war. So, if you put yourself in Lee's situation, you, there's really no loss with this because you know that the army, in the, the Union army in the East, is kind of a, is kind of in shambles. They, they your are... army's doing really well, and you're you're doing well, and you, and you have every advantage to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the army, you know, the army in the East that has been defeated at Second. Manassas are not doing very well. One soldier was quoted as saying, the whole army is disgusted. You need not be surprised if success falls to the rebels with astonishing rapidity. So they think it's going to happen soon. Um, And it's interesting. I, of course, looked at Howard's memoirs to see what he has to say about Order 191. But I went back a little bit before that. And he actually talks about Lee coming into, um, into Maryland and why he does it. And I do have some quotes from what happens when Lee gets in there. But Howard actually says like, you know, that he talks about Lee doing it partly for supplies that because he Uh couldn't obtain anything else in Virginia and Maryland was the place to start doing it. And same with, and Howard even says like, even Pennsylvania would have been good for him to do at this time. Um, And because Lee is going into Maryland, the war um, is, it's transferring beyond the Confederacy now, right? Like it's going into a border state. And this was a big deal because Lee's going to write that letter. He pops it in the mailbox, yeah. and the second he does, he doesn't wait for Javis's response. He wheels up, boys, we're going. Yep. Before he even gets the response back, he's going to take off. He's going to full absolute Leroy Jenkins situation here. He's going to move north into Maryland. He he must have known Davis was going to okay it. Davis had that quote about Lee around that time where he said, confidence in you overcomes the view which we would otherwise be taken of the exposed condition of Richmond. So what's he saying? He's like, listen, I, I trust you to leave Richmond yeah. unexposed based on what you're saying. So here goes Robert E. Lee now. He's going to board He's into the Potomac River, into Maryland. He's going to have 75,000 men at this time, and they're going to be crossing between September 4th and September 7th. To the astonishment of the Maryland locals who are used to seeing these blue, crisp uniforms, yeah. now they're seeing these ragged, dirty you know, guys. Yeah all crossing the this dirty confederate army which they were not used to seeing in maryland the rebs started singing maryland my maryland and added that phrase dear mother burst the tyrant's chain virginia could not call in vain mm-hmm. they're singing as they're singing along yeah. because they could write some songs but what's funny is you know they're going to get into frederick maryland okay it's a town just over the border and lee is going to set up his headquarters in a woodlot just north of the present-day Monocacy uh, Battlefield. Yep. It's across the street from the modern-day visitor center below yep. the area. There's some woods. It's a cool place to go. And it is. Lee is going to write a, First thing he's going to do is going to write a proclamation to the citizens of Maryland, basically trying to recruit them to their cause. And he's going to write, The people of the South have long wished to aid you in throwing off this foreign yoke to enable you again to enjoy the unalienable right of freemen and restore independence and sovereignty to your state. In obedience to this wish, our army has come among you. So he, he's coming and saying, well, here we are. You know, come come join us. You guys have been under this thing. And right off the bat, 
this is the perfect example of this army flipping. Now the, the Confederacy is clearly on offense. The, the, yep. the, the Union is clearly on defense. But this is a different strategy for Lee himself personally, too. Remember, when he quit his commission in the Union or the, the Federal Army at that time, he vowed he'd only draw his sword to save the defense of Virginia. Yep. So this is a big change for Lee personally, yep. too. Most, Many of his troops, anyway, um, they only agreed to fight in Virginia and defend Virginia. Lois yeah. Armistead talks about that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them weren't happy, and many of them took off and just deserted, right? Now, Lee's plan in the North, I mean, it was a ballsy one. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was something. He discusses playing with one of his generals named John Walker uh, in Lee's tent, his headquarters over there in Frederick. And the plan astonished Walker. I mean, just a jaw-dropping plan. Lee intended to march his army all the way to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and blow up the railroad bridge that crossed over the Susquehanna River. And Walker said Lee told him, and this is what Walker was surprised about, Lee told him, according to Walker, after that, I can turn my attention to Philadelphia, Baltimore, or Washington as, may be, as what may seem best for our interest. Mm -hmm. Now, part of Lee's, you know, just audacity, I guess, was certainly rooted in what was happening with the Union Army. Because don't forget, he's feeling confident and he knows yeah. the Union Army is kind of a mess. When Lee's crossing the Potomac, Lincoln is going to reinstall George McClellan mm -hmm. to command the Army of the Potomac, now included what was what left of the Pope's Army of Virginia. He knew Mac's reputation, Lee did, of being timid, and he wanted to take advantage of it. When Walker looked surprised at hearing this plan... Lee responded, and I quote, are you acquainted with General McClellan? He is an able general, but a very cautious one. His army is demoralized and in a chaotic condition. It will not be prepared for operations for three or four weeks. Now, this is going to prove to be a gigantic error for Lee. It, but this is the mindset. Yeah. You get an idea of looking inside the old general, what's going on in his head at this moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and well, and Howard says that when they brought McClellan back, that you know, McClellan very quickly refitted, reorganized, but was cautious because of what had happened. And Howard does actually defend him saying, and it's a little bit of a sense of humor coming through. He said, slowness was wise then, you know, as we got going again, as we were refitted, as we got supplies. But then they started going um, towards where they thought Lee might be. Well, I mean, Lee, had, he made a mistake here. The other thing Lee made a big mistake about was his attitudes of these Marylanders towards yes, his army. I have notes now, on that, too. <laughs> he's expected to be welcomed with new recruits. He thought he was going to yep. get a Laurel or Hardy handshake in the town square. And the Rebs really got a chilly reputation. Yeah. Right? They, they Picture, you know, picture Theo Epstein cruising through Cleveland in 2016 around November 1st. That's the attitude oh, he would have got. Yeah. It's very similar um, when... Um, when I was researching this episode, I thought, oh, this is very similar to um, what happens to Bragg in Kentucky, right? Where they go where they go into Kentucky and they're like, yeah, we're going to get a whole bunch of recruits and stuff. And they don't get what they expected. Um, and Howard actually talks about this reception of Lee. And he said, Confederate political leaders were disappointed with Maryland. It was too late for a few fire eaters to carry by storm the hearts of the Union Marylanders. And he also says that Lee found himself virtually in a land of lukewarm attachments to his cause, but few recruits joined him. 
the Confederate currency was also not willingly received as money. So it's not going as planned. And at the same time, Lincoln has issued a call for more volunteers as well. And that's another reason why Lee wants to get in there and recruit. But like, as you said, like they are not getting a, uh, a warm reception at all. No, there was, there was some who were courteous. Yeah, there, there was, was, a there few. was some, I mean, there was, there was a few, but for the, for, for the most part, they were, they had to do with the unfriendly citizens of Maryland and some welcomed them, like I said, but most weren't very thrilled to see them. There was no DQ cards handed out at all. I was just going to say, like, could you imagine rolling up to the DQ and handing over the Confederate currency? And they're like, we don't accept why, that here. It's probably why Jubal Early took all the ice cream two years later when he went back through there. <laughs> probably. Just keep, keep that in mind. Okay, it all goes, back to the, all goes back to the DQ. <laughs> now, Lee's headquarters is going to be set up on the, on the best farm, just, just north of it, actually. If you've been there now, the house mm-hmm. is still there, but that's not where his headquarters was. He was set up in that woodlot. And he's from September 6th through 8th, Lee's army is going to be hanging around the site of the best farm. If you've been in Monocacy, you know the area very, very well. Um, and they could rest. Just picture men were hanging out. They're bathing in the river and they're probably doing some whittling. And they're just kind of relaxing and relaxing in camp. And But they knew they were going to be moving pretty soon. But they were just enjoying the rest and relaxation because mm-hmm. they, they've been marching. And, and now they're just enjoying, enjoying the time. Now, it was around this time between the 6th and the 8th the Union Army is going to start to move. McClellan's army is going to begin to move the same day Lee's men get actually get to Frederick. Mm-hmm. Now, this vanguard, the beginning of that federal advance, you know, it's going to be the cavalry as usual. They're going to start to run into rebels as far away as the town of Hart, okay, which is now Hyattsville. It's about 50 miles away from Frederick. As they get past that, they're going to get uh, they're going to get closer to Frederick. The 1st New York Cavalry under a guy named Alonzo Adams is going to spot cavalry from the 1st North Carolina near the town of Urbana. And this is the sound of this fight is going to actually disrupt a party that Jeb Stewart's attending a place called the Landon House. He's having a great old time you know, <laughs> hearing this. Jeb at a so party. So he realizes, shockingly, but what does this tell Lee? The Union Army is much closer mm-hmm. than he expected, which will be a common theme for Lee, by the way, especially yeah. when he goes on the North. So this rest that he's enjoying is going to have to end sooner than he expected. This usual McClellan, this passive McClellan, I mean, wasn't being very passive. No, he's and not. Lee, no, so Lee finds himself in a situation he didn't expect. He had federal, a federal army approaching from the southeast from Washington, and he had another problem. There's a 13,000-man garrison mm-hmm. just 20 miles away at Harpers Ferry. Yeah. So if, if Frederick's the middle of a clock, okay, Harpers Ferry is like eight o'clock and Washington's like five Mm o'clock. Lee's right in the middle. And so he, he realizes he's in a tough situation. Lee had hoped that his presence in Frederick was going to scare off the troops at Harpers Ferry, make them leave without a fight, but they didn't do it. They stayed knowing he was stuck in the middle of two armies. Lee needs a plan. So on September 9th, 1862, he's going to pull, sit at his headquarters, he's going to pull out his pen, and he's going to write a plan called Special Orders 191. Mm-hmm. Now, Special Orders 191 um, has been a misinterpreted thing forever, like we talked about. Some say it was Lee's battle plan, okay? It was absolutely no. not. It makes no reference to what his ultimate plan was. Special Orders 191 was merely a marching order. It was who's going where. Now, I want to paraphrase this real quick, okay? Special Orders 191 had 10 points, mm-hmm. 10 paragraphs. 
listed and it will listen in Roman numerals one through 10. I'm going to leave out one and two for now and focus on three through 10. And there's a reason why. I'll tell you later. Okay. Roman number three. It says on September 10th, Stonewall Jackson's left wings, no cores yet. We're still talking wings. The divisions of AP Hill, Richard Yule, and John Jones, they're going to pass through Middletown and move towards Sharpsburg to take control of the Baltimore Ohio Railroad. That's the, that's the third point. Number four just says James Longstreet's right wing is going to move west. Uh, Robert Lee is going to be with him towards the Catoctin Heights and over South Mountain. And they're going to head to Boonesboro and they're going to chill and they're going to wait there. The fifth point was the divisions of Lafayette McClaws, Merchant Anderson. They're going to follow Longstreet towards Middletown and then head to Harpers Ferry. Basically, they're going to go to Maryland Heights uh, to really seize the garrison there to help with the Harpers Ferry people. The next point was John Walker's division is going to take a very long roundabout route to Harpers Ferry. They're going to cross the Potomac again, kind of swing around to take Loudon Heights, the second heights that overlook Harpers Ferry. D.A. Hill's division is going to form the rear guard. Um, the eighth point was Jeb Stewart's cavalry is going to send troops to Paul Longstreet, Jackson and McClaws, uh, and then basically pick up stragglers. That's all it really says. Mm -hmm. The ninth point is Jackson, McClaws, and Walker, after seizing Harpers Ferry, are going to join the main body on the in the army of, of uh, area of Boonesboro. The tenth thing, every regiment is going to bring axes, gather wood. Nice. Very important. Okay. Nice. Now, basically, all one ninety one does is split the army up. It just yeah, scatters say, the birds. It's Lee's dividing his army, and then the end is to, to mm -hmm. kind of come back together. And I mean, now I've always wondered why people say it's a battle plan. Because the first time I heard of it, you know, years and years ago, it was like it was battle plan. And I remember looking it over thinking like, what? Where's the battle? Yeah. You know? Well, I think that's the popular culture and the, the historic memory of it because yeah. it's for that reason. But it, for the most part, it was everyone split up mm -hmm. and we're all going to meet at Boonesboro. But we have to take out the Harpers Ferry garrison, but that's yeah. how it's going to be. Now, copies of this order were made for every commander leading their column. And there was also one extra made for Richmond. So there were seven total copies. Mm -hmm. That's how it comes down to. Every one of them was written in pen. They were each signed by Lee's assistant adjutant, a guy named Colonel Robert Chilton. Mm -hmm. He's going to sign them all. So here's what happens, though. As I mentioned before, there are no cores. There are wings. And some of these divisions would get passed, would, would, would be in one wing one day, one, one wing the next. Some of these divisions got passed around more than a comb on first grade picture day. That's <laughs> how often they got passed around, right? But what it did, it led to confusion. One division that moved around a lot between the two was a division of Daniel Harvey Hill. D.H. Hill, if you're nasty, yeah. right? <laughs> for that reason, Jackson had an extra copy of this order made for Hill, since Hill would be breaking off and commanding his own column. Mm -hmm. What Jackson did not know was that Lee already had a copy made for Hill. This copy that he wrote, the second one he wrote was in pencil. Yep. It wasn't in pen. It was in pencil, right? So on the 10th of September, the rebels, per Special Orders 191, are going to start to move out of Frederick. Now, if you, do you remember when we went to Frederick, how long yep. it took to get the hell out of there? Okay. Uh, Frederick is a, is a mess. It's, it was, it's a mess now, and it was a mess yep. then. This was a brutal place to leave. Traffic was just as bad then as it is now. It just takes forever to get out of there. D.H. Hill's division actually didn't even get to start to go until the 11th because they were stuck in this gridlock. The day they left, the Union Army out of the 9th Corps is going to start to arrive, and they're actually going to skirmish the rear guard of Lee's army. This is going to be Wade Hampton's guys. 
So the Rebs are leaving almost exactly. It's like a hermit crab. Rebs go, here comes wow. a union to take the same exact spot. Hill's division had to wait all day on the 10th of September in a place called the Myers Farm. The Myers Farm was about a mile north of where Lee's headquarters was in the old battlefield of Monocacy. It's um, it's a gravel pit now, unfortunately. They tore the whole thing up. It's oh, all rocks. God. But but they had to spend the entire day there on the 10th of September until they could finally move out on the 11th. So what happens on the 13th now is McClellan's army is pouring through the best farm area. They're rolling into Frederick. They're taking up that whole area. There are so many that they're clogging up the roads in town and it's causing gridlock themselves. So as the troops are trying to come into Frederick, they have to wait and they get stuck. Because of that, many of the Union men have to wait around this best farm area mm-hmm. before they can continue to proceed into Frederick. It's like sitting in traffic. You've got to wait. The Corps that was in the rear had to sit and wait, and this was the 12th Corps. So just picture them all squeezing themselves in. So sitting in the former rebel camp at Myers Farm, where D.H. Hill's guys were camped, okay, yeah. is the 27th Indiana. And they were, they were the, the, kind of the advanced regiment for their brigade. There are going to be two guys named Corporal Barton Mitchell mm-hmm. and Sergeant John Bloss who are going to be hanging out, living the life. And then Mitchell is going to see something on the ground. What's it going to be? It's going to be an envelope, and he's going to open it up. And in that envelope are three cigars and an, uh, the order two, two cigars. And <laughs> I've read both. There's Some say two, some say three. Anyway, two. Two, two cigars. Um, and a order 191 written in pencil. Right. So th- what's interesting how the Rebs did this was the, is when the rebels delivered their messages, it was kind of like an early version of kind of like a, um, of a certified mail situation. Yep. What they would do is they would take the note and they'd put it in the envelope and they'd seal it in the courier would drop it off to wherever it was intended to go. So if I'm sending you a courier, mm-hmm. You're going to get the letter. You're going to open it. You're going to take the letter out. You're going to sign the empty envelope and give it back to the courier. Mm-hmm. He's going to take it back to where he came from so they know you received it. So is the empty envelope. It's signed by D.H. Hill. It's signed by yeah. Longstreet. Okay, he got it. So that's how they do it. People debate the three cigars versus two. I think it's two. I'll yeah, tell you. I've read three. Cigar. And also the, the other myth about this is there are some sources that say – that the order was found wrapped around the cigars and there was no envelope at all. No, that's, that's wrong. It was definitely an envelope that was inside the envelope. No question. So, and so that's how they did it. Now, Mitchell, he's going to, upon finding this letter, he, he knows, he knew it was something important. So he brought it to his boss, a guy named Captain Peter Kopp, who then took her to the regimental headquarters. Eventually it's going to find its way to Frederick to McClellan, but we'll talk about that here in a little bit. And we should mention the time that the order is found. It's found around noon on September Right, we're going to we're get, get, get to all that right. Yeah. And so it's funny, but after the war, it's, this, this, it's funny how you were talking before is why is this whole thing important, right? After the war, this 191 became such a big deal that everyone wanted to take some kind of credit yeah. for it. There was a guy named David Vance. Mm-hmm. He's the one who says, I found the damn thing. But fortunately for Mitchell, you know, Sergeant Bloss, he wrote that he wrote right afterwards, and both Bloss and Mitchell got wounded at the cornfield in Antietam soon afterwards. But Bloss is going to write that Mitchell found um, found this letter along with two cigars. That's why this too. 
because that's what Bloss says, okay? But who knows? But that's what he says. Everyone wants to know what happened to the cigars. Who knows? I think they smoked them. Oh. Why wouldn't they, right? Well, why not? I would. <laughs> but there's so many conspiracy theories about this order. Mm-hmm. After, Like we said, after the war, most in the Confederacy blamed D.H. Hill for losing his yeah. orders, right? He denied it until his dying day. He actually had the damn order. What yeah. do ink? And it's down in the University of North Carolina right now. If you want to go see yeah. it, that's so, where And if he's got his order, he's not going to be wondering, hmm, where did this go? But then the other thing is, too, is like whoever was sending that order, were they not wondering when they didn't get the envelope back? Well, that's the thing is they were all moving out and it was kind of that, – that's the whole thing. Like, did no one question know. like, where's that empty envelope? Well, here's the thing about D.H. About D. Hill. He actually lost an order during the seven days battle. So he actually had a reputation. So him losing it kind of made sense. He at also the time. got lost himself at Chickamauga, too. So he has a. And it's also the site they found the letter was the site that he was camped at all day yep. on the 10th. So it all, it all kind of made sense. Um, and so that's, that's who the heck knows. Okay. But there's a theory that came out afterwards. That it was actually Henry Kidd Douglas yes. who who lost them after Thomas Rosser, he said a cigar smoking member of Jackson's staff had them fall out of his pocket, and that was a direct hint at Kidd Douglas. The, the, yeah, it's unlikely that it was. And who him. knows if Rosser had any kind of bias against Kidd Douglas, Douglas or whatever? But I read that article too, and like the um, the article was like, you know, it said that yeah. And just remember, Henry Kidd Douglas smoked cigars, and I'm like, okay, so just because somebody smokes cigars, it's now their fault that they lost the order. <laughs> But I mean, it makes sense. You know, Hill, yep. he's camped on the same ground. You know, he left, he left his phone twice in Fredericksburg yep. and he dropped his mortars in the seventh, um, <laughs> on the seventh day battle. So <laughs> it kind of made sense. It's kind of, it kind of played the, played the part. Right. But even there was even this thought that Lee had purposely left them behind as mm-hmm. a rope a dope. And when a Levy's here as he's you know, twisting his mustache and, <laughs> You know, but here's the thing that's weird about this. There's a lot of things that don't make sense about this. On the on the twelfth, it rained all day. It yep. poured. Okay. When they found the envelope on the thirteenth, on the ground was bone dry. And no one can explain that. It's one of the mysteries of, of the order. The envelope was bone dry, even though it rained the previous day. Mm-hmm. So who knows? I mean, it doesn't really matter. But regardless of who dropped them, the real mystery is when they were found. Now. No one doubts the date. It was the 13th yep. of September. But the time of day is where this controversy lies with this thing. Yep. The time is important because it is the it is the basis of the belief held by some historians, like, Steve, like Stephen Sears you mentioned, who say McClellan had these orders early and nothing with them. Some say he did nothing but 12 to 18 hours while Lee happily danced away. And that's just not really true. It's just not. No, McClellan His was rep- doing stuff that day. Right. McClellan's reputation is kind of what fuels it. And if you look, if you look at the timeline, it paints a very clear picture mm-hmm. that Mac did not sit on his ass with these orders. There's a reason why there's this confusion. Now, General Alpheus Williams, commander of that 12th Corps, um, and he is owner of the best facial hair in the Civil War, by the way, and that that's yeah. not debated. <laughs> there's no controversy with that. He, like many of his soldiers' diaries, and has included all right that they all got to the site of the best farm around noon. Yep. So that's pretty pretty sure when they think they're going to get there. But there's a source that says they got there earlier. And the reason why people think that it's earlier is from a story told by the hero of Kernstown, Nathan Kimball. Mm. According, according to Kimball, who was part of the Second Corps, he rode ahead to meet with Sergeant Bloss, one of the men who helped who found the cigars the yep. order was found. 
Bloss happened to be Kimball's nephew, because of course he is. Yeah. Okay. It's a, uh, and according to Kimball, Kimball took the letter personally right to McClellan. What? Which is just in after the war, a lot of the troops blamed, just chalked it up to the ramblings of an old man, said there's no way in hell he I thought it was that's what he was Williams talking about. that took it to him. But if you're looking for a source yeah. saying it was early, there's your source, yeah. which is kind of maybe the genesis for a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff. It's more likely that the orders were probably sent, they were probably found, uh, I would say, probably between noon and two o'clock on the yeah. 13th, realistically, right? So what's Matt doing at this time? He's most accounts most accounts have McClellan arriving in Frederick around 10 o'clock in the morning. This is Frederick Town. If you know the area, Frederick, the town, is not where the best farm is. It's, it's, it's further. It's northeast. And it's with, the, with all the people, the congestion, it's a mess. So it's not like the orders were not found at the best farm. That's not where McClellan's headquarters was. He was yeah. actually a little bit further away. So, yeah, it's going to take He's, a little bit of time for him to get those orders once they are found. Right. He's going to meet with Ambrose Burnside in, in East Frederick. Mm-hmm. And then he's going to visit some troops from the Second Corps. Now, this yep. is all according to the people who saw him. Uh, he went to West Frederick afterwards at noontime, and this is substantiated by the fact that he had a meeting to talk with uh, some reinforcements mm-hmm. to help Alfred Pleasanton, whose cavalry was trying to take the Catoctin Gap that afternoon. Yeah. So he was meeting with them to send replacements, some, some reinforcements rather. But Clellan, and this is where the whole thing goes. This is where it goes off the, off the wagon with this. Yeah. McClellan's going to send a telegram to Abraham Lincoln. The guy with the hat, okay? <laughs> and this t- this telegram is going to be time-stamped. It's going to say September 13th, 1862, 12M. Now, in this telegram, McClellan is going to say, I have the whole rebel, for- rebel force in front of me. The army is moving as rapidly as possible. I have all the plans of the rebels and will catch them in their own traffic. My men are equal to the emergency. So clearly in this telegram, Mac is alluding to the fact that he has this order. Yeah. Now, 12 M normally means 12 noon. Yeah. But there's a problem, okay? When here's the problem. The copy Lincoln has from his person doesn't say 12 M. It says 12 midnight. Yeah. So what seems to back this up is the fact that the timestamp of what it was physically received in Washington is 2.35 a.m. on the 14th of September. So the timing kind of lines up. Yeah. And here's the other problem with this telegram. In the telegram, Mac is also going to say that we have possession of the Catoctin. Mm-hmm. Now, considering he had a meeting at noontime to talk about sending replacements to help take the Catoctin, there's no way he could have sent a telegram saying he had it while he had the meeting to discuss exactly before take it. before he even sends Pleasanton out. So so there's that. Oh, and the one more thing, the Rebs had cut the telegraph lines. We couldn't have sent it at noon anyway. Nope. They cut the lines when they left, so he couldn't have. So there's a lot of this of when when he has the plans or when he sends it. McClellan is also going to send some telegrams to Henry Halleck. Mm-hmm. And one he's going to send is at 11 o'clock p.m. at 9.13 which he clearly discusses these plans now. He's going to tell Halleck, an order of General Ari Lee addressed to D.H. Hill, which has accidentally come into my hands this evening. That's what he says. The authenticity of which questionable disclosure of the plans of the enemy 
inconclusively that the main rebel army is now before me, including Longstreet and Jackson. Mm -hmm. So whatever time this actually was, no matter when it was, when he actually got them, it was clearly well afternoon on 13th. I would would say, if I had to guess, I would say he got them sometime after 4 o'clock. Because that would be, you know, that would be probably what they would have considered evening time then. But, you know, the other thing, too, is McClellan is not just he's not sitting on his ass doing nothing. He's, you know, he's sending Pleasanton out. And the reason for that is because um, he's been getting reports from citizens trying to figure out what's happening with Lee's army and that. But, you know, Order 191 does talk about how Lee is going to, he's dividing his army. But there's some something that like you know there's some evidence that points to the fact that mcclellan might have been starting to figure that out already given the reports he had from citizens um and just people that he knew that were out scouting for him that lee was dividing his army so mcclellan was already beginning to suspect that's what was happening what mcclellan did is he he would write his orders at night for the next morning that was his mo yeah. he'd sit down on his tent at night he'd write them with a the plan of oh, that plan was going to be sprung the next morning but you know when you talk about mcclellan in law sort of 191 you you think of timid to your mm-hmm. point over cautious but there's a good reason for that which he was kind of hinted to okay remember when i didn't read uh, uh orders that started with i said i'm going to start with three and i'll read one and two yeah the reason why i did that is when mac got these orders whatever whenever he got them whenever he finally got them his orders started with three. It did not have one and two. Yeah. So it started with three. And that made him very scared for those reasons you talked about. Mm-hmm. Number one and number two, truthfully, were nothing. They really were. Number one merely said, I don't want any soldiers in Fredericks because they hate us. Nobody yeah. in Frederick. <laughs> and, number, and number two basically said, any soldiers who are too sick or don't have shoes Major Walter Taylor is going to take them back to Winchester. Yeah. No mention he's going to make them pancakes and small mountains, but <laughs> he's going to take them back to Winchester. That's all it said. Mm-hmm. But Mac had no idea what one and two said. So if you see all these movements and one and two are missing, it could be a concern. Don't forget, around this time, there are rumors in Washington that Mac clearly knew about that William Loring's army was going to join Lee. Yeah. There was even there was even rumors that Braxton Bragg was going to send a division up yep. to defend Lee. Right. Yep. So he doesn't know this. Mac is also going to reports uh, from the Philadelphia Go- Pennsylvania Governor Andrew Curtin, who's going to send a telegraph to Lincoln on September twelfth, same almost the same day, the day before to be to be accurate, that he had reports. Mm-hmm. Curtin's telling Lincoln. He has reports that Lee has 190,000 men in Maryland and 250,000 more in Virginia. McClellan had no idea, but he did know that there was another draft in April 62 in the South. Yeah. So, I mean, he has no idea. So he's so when they talk about Mac doesn't know how he thinks he's outnumbered, this is where he's getting it from. Yeah, and he's also... Although, He's also getting it from the fact, like, once he starts figuring out Lee's dividing his army and he kind of gets confirmation of that from 191, to divide your army is a very risky maneuver unless you've got the troops, right? So McClellan is starting to think like, oh, shit, I could very well be outnumbered. Um, And he's got, I think, you know, if he's cautious, I mean, I, I don't blame him with the information that he's got. Like, I mean, 
they don't have the technology that we have to see this stuff or, or whatever. Well, one, right? one more thing though. Okay. Yeah. So he, he, he doesn't, he has the orders. He doesn't get number one, number two. He doesn't know what it says, what it says. Yeah. He, he's hearing these stories of these, of from Curtin and all, and the citizens of this, this monster army. And then you're reading out, you're reading number nine. Okay. I'm going to read, I'm going to read the exact quote of what it says. This is the special order 191, number nine. Um, the commands of Generals Jackson, McClaws, and Walker, after accomplishing the objects which they have been attached, Harpers Ferry, will join the main body of the army in Boonesboro. If you're reading that, and it says the commands of General Jackson, McClaws, and Walker, then they're going to join the main army? Yeah. What the hell's this main army? Yeah. So you're reading this, you go, who the F, are, who is Boons? What is this? So if you're getting all this information of course, you're going to be concerned about it. I mean, is it a surprise he thought he had he had less men? I mean, he gets bashed for this, but the reality is you're only as good as the intel you're getting. Yeah. For Matt, this is a dogs and cats living together mass hysteria situation. Yeah, now. like I would be thinking like, holy shit, how big is this army? And if he's able to divide it, like, I mean, that's risky. You're not going to divide it unless you've got the forces to do it. And then what curtains writing him and everything else. And of course, they don't have time to substantiate the claims. They, they don't. They don't have time to send people out and be like, yeah, we can confirm this number for you, right? Mm -hmm. um, no, what was, what was the task that Halleck and Lincoln both gave McClellan? No matter what you do, you still have to do this, right? you got to protect Washington. Yeah. So all, now you got this in here too. Halleck is going to telegram McClellan on 913. He's going to mm -hmm. say, until you, until you are certain of the enemy's force south of the Potomac in Virginia, you are wrong in uncovering the capital. So Halleck is telling what Halleck is telling him is this: We think this whole thing's a ruse to get you to chase them into Maryland, yeah. and then this monstrous two hundred fifty thousand man army is going to come in the back door through the Savannah and mm -hmm. take Washington. So now, and then he says in the quote, "Beware the evils I point out to you." So you think your boss sucks? I mean, can you imagine trying to figure this stuff out? Oh my god! So now, well, this is like typical Halleck, though, being kind of a dick as well. No, exactly. And look, we're not going to be McClellan apologists, no. but put yourself in his shoes now. Mm -hmm. You've got this order which talks about this army spread out, and he's thinking Lee is is a genius militarily. If he doesn't know he has more men than I do, why the hell would he split them up like this in enemy territory and yeah. and separate them up? And certainly, why the hell would you leave an order behind saying where the hell you're going? So it's just enough gray area to really put a caution into, into him. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about being cautious and there's so many men, this is where it comes from. So what are Lee's men doing at this time? So D.H. Hill's division is in Boonesboro. Jones' division is, is still south of the Potomac. And Jackson is surrounding Harpers Ferry, which is ultimately going to fall um, to the largest capture of Union troops in the war. This is the George Lamb Willard, yep. you know, Harpersbury cowards thing. That's all going to happen then. Lee sort of makes an audible at the line of scrimmage at this time, too. He's going to send Longstreet over to Hagerstown, mm -hmm. which is about 15 miles away in um, north of Boonesboro, probably to get supplies in Teton Brewery, probably. That's exactly <laughs> what I would do. But Longstreet's actually sent there for a couple of reasons. He's going to raid Union supplies. He's going to take out some local militia who are reportedly in that area. And he's also going to kind of block the passage that leads to Pennsylvania. So if Andrew Curtin's going to send troops, they're going to be able to slow them down. Yeah. So I mentioned the roads in Frederick are, are a tough task to get through anyway, especially when you're moving 80 to 90,000 men through them. 
these are these these are the guys who are gonna chase these men and they're ultimately gonna do it, but they're not sitting on their asses on the 13th. So you you've been hinted this a couple of times now. That being said, the Union troops were on the move on orders from McClellan the night before on the 12th, yep. which is before the order was even found. Yeah. So regardless of this order, 191 or not, this order did not spur McClellan to go into finding Lee. He was already doing yep, it because at the of time. intel he was getting from citizens and all that, you know, and he's sending Pleasanton out and, you know, I, I never, I've always questioned the whole McClellan sat in his ass for 12 to 16 hours when he gets that, he finds order 191. He gets it probably afternoon, evening on the 13th. And it's how many, it's hours. It, it's like not even 24 hours later, they're fighting the battle of South Mountain. So that's why I really have never bought the whole he sat on his ass thing because he's actually yeah, doing the, stuff and he's the time is a workout. No, the time it doesn't. And when you're getting stuff from Halleck, when you're getting like curtains telling you know curtains telling Halleck this is how many troops he has, and you get this order that's basically implying Lee's dividing his army. You're beginning to suspect that from intelligence you're getting, so you're gonna start thinking, shit, he might have more men. I mean. I'd probably think the same thing too. I mean, I'm not, again, we're not being McClellan apologists, but we're trying to look at it from his perspective as an army commander um, that, you know, the only reason you're, the army you're about to fight would divide themselves up is because they have superior forces to you, right? And they know it. You know who else commented about how fast McClellan was moving was Robert E. Lee. Yeah. He's going to write, he's going to write a letter to Jefferson Davis on the 16th of September, right, the, right before Antietam. Talking about the day of the night of the 13th, he's going to write. He's going to write, and I quote, learning that night, the 13th, that Harpers Ferry had not yet surrendered and the enemy was advancing more rapidly than convenient from Fredericktown. So he knew on the 13th McClellan was coming, and that surprised mm -hmm. him. By the end of the night on 9-13, two divisions from the 9th Corps are already in Middletown near Turner's Gap at South Mountain. These movements were all made, like we said, prior to the finding of 191. Contrary to popular belief, the Union Army was just, they weren't sitting idle. They were moving all along. Alfred Pleasanton, the cavalry guy, he's going to get a copy of Lost Order 191 sometime late in the afternoon on 913. And he will send horsemen to Harper's Ferry to see what was afoot at the Circle K. <laughs> now, his report is going to confirm that Jackson is, in fact, at Harper's Ferry. Yeah. So despite concerns about the authenticity of this lost order and that maybe it was a rope-a-dope by Lee, Mac is now feeling pretty damn good about this intel. He thinks he has the golden ticket. Yep. So what is that famous quote he says to Gibbon? Um, he says, with this order, I can whip Bobby Lee or I will go home. So he's thinking, I'm going to get this guy yep. now. So by 6.30 p.m. on 9.13, McClellan, like we said the night before, he always writes his battle orders. He's writing his battle plan for Burnside and William Franklin for the next day. It'll begin at 9 o'clock in the morning on the 14th when the 9th Corps, using Jesse Reno, will attack Fox's Gap to hit um, D.H. Hill's division, while that 1st Corps, under fighting Joe Hooker, is going to move on to Turner's Gap, where he's expected to attack by noon. Turner's Gap, of course, will be the birth of the Iron Brigade, yep. and of course, this will be the Battle yep. of South Mountain. Yep. So this is this is within hours. So this is probably yep. going to be very soon afterwards. The rest of McClellan's army is moving too, but they're stuck in that human traffic jam that is mm -hmm. Frederick, probably that construction we got stuck in. 
We have to <laughs> God, go around and around. What a nightmare. <laughs> right? But the question that, that always seems to come up, too, there's many questions with this, is when did Robert Lee discover McClellan had a copy of this lost order? And this is another mystery, another enigma, if you want to call it that, yep. right? Now, we said before, based on the letter he wrote to Davis on the 13th, he already knew the troops were moving, and they were moving really quickly. Yeah. Um, but those troops were tasked to move before the order. So they were kind of already going. And there's a lot of different stories of when this thing was. One story actually came from Lee himself. He talked about it in 1868. And this is kind of a mystery to him, too. Lee says he, he did talk about it. He says that according to Lee, Jeb Stewart, he had a spy embedded in McClellan's headquarters, who told him around 11 o'clock in the morning on the 13th of September that Lee be, uh, the, uh, Mac became very excited about a piece of paper he found. Hmm. Now, the timing doesn't work out, first of all. No, 11 o'clock because in the morning. 11, 11 o'clock there. in the morning. Well, Mac was there, oh. but he was at this point, he was moving around between yep. East and West Frederick. He was meeting with Burnside. He was going to, to get the, he, he, was, he was not in his headquarters. Um, Lee, Stewart also told Lee that the spy came to him around dusk on 9-13 while Stewart was Turner's Gap and rushed to him on news uh, with the news on horseback. Now, considering where Mac was, okay, he would have had to read the story at 11 o'clock in the morning per the spy. And the fact that Turner's Gap is about 10 miles away, it's hard to imagine that on horse it would have taken six hours to get there. Yeah. As you know, you can roll skate backwards with your <laughs> bandana and your whistle and get there faster than six hours on a horse, realistically. There's that. The other issue with Stuart, it, up until about two o'clock in the afternoon, was at Catoctin, mm -hmm. which is about just three miles away from where Mac allegedly was. So yeah. wouldn't the spy have just gone there for two o'clock? Yeah, probably. So there's a lot of things that don't make sense. Yeah, a lot of stuff with the timeline does One not One thing make that sense. is true is on the, um, the, on the 15th of September, Lost Order 191 was in the northern newspapers. Yeah. Somebody leaked it, which was a gigantic, in the middle of a military campaign, this strategic piece of military intelligence got leaked to a northern newspaper, and they've read it in the, read it in the Yankee wow. papers. Now, no wonder William Sherman and Bill Belichick hate the media. <laughs> think about it. Yeah. It makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, right? that's that's a huge thing for it to be seen there, and can't imagine what Lee's reaction was to that when he found out about it. So, regardless, regardless when he found it out, you know, Lee Lee did mobilize his men very quickly uh, to, to Sharpsburg. So he pulled them out of Sharpsburg. So he likely knew about it. Not he he probably had the combination of McClellan moving fast upon him. Yeah, he heard about it and he he did finally get to Boonesboro. He did blow the conch shell pretty quickly. Now, despite the idea that some people that Mac had Lee's battle plan, he, you know he didn't. No. And also, this order when he found it was three days old mm -hmm. that was missing a section describing where Lee's men were going, not the ultimate plan. What it was, which to many accounts was Harrisburg. So. The info McClellan received still left him in that gray area because of the info he was getting, which was proven to be incorrect, that came from Andrew Curtin and Henry Halleck. So the bottom line is this, right? Based on what he's hearing, he did what he did think he was clearly outnumbered. Yeah. And despite that, he still moved his men quickly to force Lee to fight at Sharpsburg. And he threw a real wrench into, into Lee's plan to invade Pennsylvania. There's no question that that's did. what that did. Yep. No, right. He, he so 
Lost Order 191, the single greatest military intelligence coup in history, right up there with the code breakers of World War II. I mean, that's an eye of the beholder situation right yeah. there. Is McClellan really unfairly blamed for being slow? He, I think he clearly is because oh, he I really he wasn't too. slow. He is. He, the he, communication that Lee and Halleck, I mean, that Lincoln and Halleck um, was given to him just shows how fast, how fast he was clearly moving to prove that, yep. right? What one, what really what, what Lost Order 191 did do was it did give George McClellan a good idea where Lee's men were, but gave no idea what the ultimate plan was. And the Union General was basically forced to make decisions in real time based on intel that was clearly wrong yep. against a shrewd enemy who kind of knew how to fight, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I think, too, what Order 191 did was it confirmed some of the intelligence that McClellan already had that was accurate, that Lee was dividing his army. But he didn't know numbers other than what he's getting from Halleck and, you know, Andrew Curtin. And again, like I said, you know, if your enemy is dividing their army, that's a risky move. So therefore, he's assuming that uh, Lee must have large numbers, right? And like you said, like when they're supposed to all meet at Boonesboro, what does that mean? You know, I'd be worried too. And I think like, I, I think he do McClellan does get unfairly blamed for this. Um, it's really the timeline part of it that doesn't add up at all. Like there is no 12 or 16 hours that he's sitting on his ass. He's, he's not, he's mobilizing his troops. He's writing out a battle plan for the next day. He's already sent Pleasanton out. He sent troops out on the 12th as well. You know, so he's doing stuff. He's not just sitting there. Hmm. You know. But, you know, the one person who would disagree with Stephen Sears of, uh, of the world that comes from McClellan is Robert Lee himself. Mm -hmm. And he said this after the war about this 191. He says, had the lost dispatch not been lost, and had McClellan continued his cautious policy for two or three days longer, I would have had all my troops reconcentrated and called, a, and he ended up calling the lost order a great calamity, is what he called it. Wow. So, what resulted was was Lee was basically pushed back to Virginia after cutting his invasion short, which ultimately led to the Battle of Antietam, followed by the Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. But what Lost Order 191 is going to do, it's going to end up being debated forever because yeah. there's so many sources that talk about it. And it became such a big deal after the war, finger pointing towards who lost it, um, glory of who found it, how important it yeah. was. Some people found it was more important than others. Um, was Lee using this to kind of as an excuse to why he got beat at Antietam, even though he really didn't. It was close, but he did get driven back. Um, so it's tough to say it'll it'll never be never be a fact. That's why you're going to have different historians who are going to use it to bash McClellan. Yep. There are going to be others who are going to use it to praise McClellan, and then everywhere else is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So make up your own mind. Exactly. Read, read up on 191. Yeah. Decide for yourself what it was. My own personal opinion is I think the Union Army moved faster than expected. I think Lost Order 191 gave them a little bit of a push, although they were yep. already starting to go there. But clearly what it did do is it did force Lee to concentrate uh, on the banks there at the Antietam River mm -hmm. and what it, Antietam Creek. And what it did is it did force him to cut his plan short instead of going to Harrisburg. So if, you're yeah. at the, if you're looking at the big picture, he didn't make it to Harrisburg. And of course, everybody knows he's going to try again a year later. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, what it did do, it did give that, that Union Army that shot in the arm they needed. 
Lee promised his cabinet that if he pushed him Lee back over the over the Potomac River, he was going to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, which led to a lot of things like arming free black slaves, yeah. um, free black men rather join the army, and all the stuff he did. So you can make a you can make a case that's very important. You you can make a case that's not important. So there you have it. Decide for yourself. I I I agree with you. What you said about it, I think um, McClellan is unfairly treated. I mean, yeah, McClellan is. I mean, he he is his own problem at times. He's very arrogant. You know, some of the stuff that he says behind people's backs is is whatever. But I think in this case, he is getting you know unfairly blamed for not like. I mean, there's no twelve hours that he's not moving, and I think a lot of our perception that we have of 191 comes from some of our secondary sources today that that one or two authors or you know maybe more than that are writing about it in a certain way and that's their interpretation it does not mean they're wrong but then other authors kind of follow suit because they're i don't know if they're maybe afraid to go against what you know someone else has said or whatever but you know, again, it's history. There can be new evidence that comes to light. There can be someone that comes along that interprets the historical record in a different way, uses a source that wasn't used before. And, you know, it starts getting interpreted in a different way. And I think that's the great thing about history is it's, we'll never really know all there is to know about 191 and all that. But I think it's a really cool thing in history. Um, I don't think it's like as big a deal as, you know, <laughs> some people make it to be, but it's debated so much that we had to do an episode about it. No, no, dog. Like we said it was the fifth lost order that summer alone. And it's important. It's the most famous one. And so it's fun to talk about no matter what side you're on. So I think it's a good place to drop it yeah. from now, but I would suggest anybody do, you know, do homework on it, read up on it. There's a lot of great sources on it. Decide for yourselves. Yeah. But the timeline doesn't add up to McClellan sitting on his butt for 12 to 18 hours. It just doesn't add up. But um, read and uh, decide for yourself. So what's coming up for us next, Mary? What's, what's down the pipe uh, for us? We are probably going to do a couple of, not I don't want to say lighthearted episodes, but just some stuff we've been talking about doing for a while where we're just going to kind of sit down and have our usual bar conversation. Um, it's not going to be battle focused. It's going to be about a couple other things that we have uh, have some ideas about. But yeah, we will be getting back to battles again soon. Uh, we will be announcing stuff about the last two books in our book club for 2022 as well. Um, we're going to be announcing our books for 2023 soon as well. We had a great roundtable last night. We will be having um, another one in October, so stay tuned for that. Um, and as always, Darren, thank you for being the amazing co-host that you are. And thank you to our listeners for everything, all your support these last 93 episodes. And hopefully we'll see you on our Facebook Live later today or yep. this morning. Off we go. When this episode drops. Off, off we go. All right. Have a great time. Any final words from you, Fincheroo? Well, just thank you for being you and for all the hard work you put into this podcast. Oh, it's, a, it's always a lot of fun. It's always <laughs> a lot of fun. All right, everybody. But thanks for listening. We appreciate it. We'll catch up with you soon. Uh, have a safe end of the week. Have a good weekend. Hope to see you on Saturday at our Facebook Live and hope we'll see you down the road. All right, off we go. Have a great weekend, everybody. See you guys later. Peace out. Bye.